Welcome to the Say the Word podcast, where we'll dig into words and language as tools for curiosity. I'm your host, Cindy Givinoli, and together we're going to explore how language is used in literature, memoir, poetry, and all kinds of fiction and nonfiction to connect us to what it means to be human and how to use curiosity to peel back the layers of what's keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives we were always meant to be living. Welcome back. Today we're talking about Saba Tahir's book, An Ember in the Ashes. It's the first book in her young adult fantasy series, which is four books long and worth every page. As I've mentioned before, I think that fiction can play such an important role in empathy as it puts us right into the minds and the hearts of the characters that we're imagining to life as we read the pages. Now, in this series, Tahira tells the story from several different characters' perspectives, and they're all told in the first person. Now, what I love about this is that often these characters are in direct conflict with each other. So to read each one's perspectives, to internalize their emotions and thought processes through reading them in the first person It helps us see the complex motivations and traumas and dreams that each of the characters carries within them. And it doesn't let us, as the reader, settle into comfortable hero versus villain assumptions. I love stories that remind us that we all carry so many facets within us. Now, something else that I love about this series is that it's based on Arabic mythology. Now, I love fantasy of all sorts, but there is definitely a proliferation of European mythology, most often Greek, Celtic, or Norse, as the basis for so much of the fantasy writing out there. So I get really excited at the opportunity to read fantasy based in some of the other vibrant mythologies of the world. Now, Sabata here grew up in California's Mojave Desert. Actually, she grew up in her family's 18-room motel, which has got to come with all sorts of great stories, right? She's of Pakistani descent, and she uses the Arabic mythology of her heritage to build a world of jinns and ifrits and ghouls. And she uses words rooted in Urdu and Punjabi that lend depth and richness to her characters and settings. You know, for example, in these books, she gives the story keepers of the tribes the title Kahani. And this title is rooted in the Urdu word Kahani, which translates to story in English. And I just think that's gorgeous. I love the way that being drawn into a fictional world can open up the real one wider to us. So let's step into this one. Now, this is from a chapter from 17-year-old Leia's point of view. Here we go. I regard him anew, at last seeing him for what he is. If you could just be who you are in here, I place my palm over his heart. Instead of who they made you, then you would be a great emperor. I feel his pulse thud against my fingers. But they won't let you, will they? 
They won't let you have compassion or kindness. They won't let you keep your soul. My soul's gone. He looks away. I killed it dead on that battlefield yesterday. I think of Spiro Telemann then, of what he said to me the last time I saw him. There are two kinds of guilt, I say softly, the kind that's a burden and the kind that gives you purpose. Let your guilt be your fuel. Let it remind you of who you want to be. Draw a line in your mind. Never cross it again. You have a soul. It's damaged, but it's there. Don't let them take it from you, Elias. Alrighty, so I want to talk about the aspects of this excerpt revolving around the idea of guilt and its role in our lives. First, Elias says, my soul's gone. I killed it on that battlefield yesterday. And while it's not stated directly, what we sense here isn't just guilt, but also regret. It's generally agreed that guilt occurs when we do something that we know is wrong while we're doing it. Regret is what we experience when we look back on an action and feel that we should or could have done something differently. They're not mutually exclusive. You can have both. But they're not the same thing. And in this case, Elias is feeling both and more. But I want to pause here and talk for just a moment about regret. Now, I can't begin to count the number of times that I have heard some variation of, I have no regrets, everything led me to where I am now, which is a lovely sentiment, but, and I'm about to say something controversial here, so as always, you know, feel free to disagree. But here's what that statement says to me. Anyone who claims to have no regrets in their life has either lived under a rock with zero human interaction, or they're lying, or they're not looking back on their lives with sincere and honest interest. Because here's the thing. To be human means that we move through the world the best way we know how, with the tools that we have at any given moment, full of all the fear and desire and insecurities and traumas and foibles that make up every single one of us. So if you can look back on every interaction with every person you have ever come across in your entire life and not wish to take back or change any part of what you said or didn't say, what you did or didn't do, then it's likely you're a saint, to which I say kudos to you. But if you're one of us mere mortals, then, well, regret can be a beautiful opportunity for learning, growth, and compassion. Regret and guilt can serve such important roles in helping us live our lives in accordance with our values. Disregarding them is not only naive, but it can actively sabotage us. Which feels like a perfect segue into Leia's comment about guilt. She says here, There are two kinds of guilt, the kind that's a burden and the kind that gives you purpose. Let your guilt be your fuel. Guilt and regret, when we carry it, when we wallow in it, drown in it, it's nothing but useless self-flagellation. And honestly, it's a little bit self-indulgent, right? It doesn't change anything, it doesn't contribute anything, and it doesn't make amends. It simply weighs us down and keeps us cycling through the same patterns over and over again. 
But when we choose to look at our actions with honesty and have genuine interest in how we came to behave in that way, in the impact of our actions, then we can swim out of the uselessness of simply shouldering that burden and into real learning and growth. We can use that guilt as the springboard for change, even if that change simply looks like a commitment to never repeat that behavior. Now, can you see the difference here? You know, if we stay only in judgment of our behavior, we stay stuck there and the guilt is useless. It serves neither us nor anyone else. But if we get curious about our behavior, about why we chose the path that we did, why we said or why we did what we did, then we can also get curious about what we can do about it and how we can make it right or make the changes necessary to never repeat it. And then we can make use of that guilt. We can use it as the signal that we have behaved outside of our values and we can learn from it. As Leah puts it here, we can use it to help us draw a line in our mind, to help us commit to never crossing it again. Now, here it also feels important to address the difference between guilt and shame. And if you aren't familiar with her work, Brene Brown is the go-to expert on this. I really encourage you to check her out if you never have. Her stuff is so, so good, and it's just so accessible. Now, she's a grounded theory researcher who has studied courage, vulnerability, shame, and empathy for two decades. And in her TED Talk on shame, which I will definitely link in the show notes for you, she's very clear that guilt and shame are two different things. She says, shame is a focus on self. Guilt is a focus on behavior. Shame is, I am bad. Guilt is, I did something bad. When we do something hurtful, guilt is, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. And shame is, I'm sorry, I am a mistake. Shame is highly, highly correlated with addiction, depression, violence, aggression, bullying, suicide, eating disorders. Guilt is inversely correlated with those things. The ability to hold something we've done or failed to do up against who we want to be is incredibly adaptive. It's uncomfortable, but it's adaptive. Oh, she's so good. Now, isn't that exactly what Leah says to Elias here? When she tells him to let his guilt be his fuel, she says, let it remind you of who you want to be. She tells him to make it a lesson learned about where his lines are and which ones he's willing to cross, to hold this action up against who you want to be and adjust according to what you find. So I was thinking about this, and the first thing that popped into my head when I thought of a time that guilt served to change my own behavior and helped me move toward who I wanted to be, it might seem like sort of a silly example, and it's a little bit embarrassing, but here it is. When I was a senior in high school, my younger brother and I got into an argument. He's three years younger than me, and we've had a special bond all of our lives, but, you know, that didn't stop us from fighting. And those two things you should know here. One, mm. I was, let's just say, a scrappy kid. I had a talent for full contact sports, a short temper, and a seriously solid right hook. Two, my brother is a deeply empathic person, which, if you're not aware, can actually translate into knowing exactly which buttons to push to 
put a person right over the freaking edge. So on the occasion in question, I don't remember now how things escalated exactly, but they culminated in some kind of smart mouth comment from him and that right hook from me. Now, in that fraction of a second between the decision to swing and my fist connecting, a fleeting look crossed his face that, man, it's been more than 20 years and it can still haunt me in the middle of the night. There was both hurt and betrayal in that look and it signified to me a massive and unacceptable breach between that action and who I wanted to be. I had spent my whole life feeling lovingly protective of my little brother, being someone he could count on to see him, to defend him, to, you know, have his back. And that punch, thrown in real anger as a near adult, felt wrong to the very marrow of my bones. I was instantly sorry for it. But the guilt that still lingers over that long-since-forgiven moment created a line for me that I never wanted to cross again. Not just the physical confrontation, but the idea that indulging momentary rage could create real damage to a relationship that meant everything to me. It was a turning point in how I dealt with anger and frustration in my life. That guilt taught me a lesson that has served my life and my relationships very well. And while I cannot even begin to claim that I have never spoken or acted in anger since, yeah, right, I wish, what I can say is that the image of Matt's face in that split-second moment has kept me from ever saying or doing something beyond apology or repair. I think most of us carry some moment, big or small, that showed us where a line was for us, that taught us not to step over it ever again. I don't know about you, but as uncomfortable as that guilt is for me, I am damn grateful for it and for the regrettable future actions that it prevented. Now, the discussion around Elias's soul feels to me like a discussion around shame. When he says he killed his soul on the battlefield, isn't he saying that he's inherently damaged now, that he's somehow irreparable? But Leia says to him, you have a soul. It's damaged, but it's there. Don't let them take it from you. And I was thinking about this and I wondered, what if we substitute the word worth for the word soul in those sentences? What if Elias said, my worth is gone. I killed it on that battlefield yesterday. What if, a, what if Leia had said, your sense of worth is damaged, but it's there. Don't let them take it from you. I mean, if Elias believes that his worth is gone, that as a person, he is inherently damaged beyond repair, then what agency does he have to right his wrongs, to contribute to making things better? I mean, can you see how that shame could easily spiral into a sort of, well, you know, what I do doesn't matter because all is lost and there's no way to fix me anyway. I mean, it sounds dramatic, but can you see how disempowering this is and how unproductive? Teasing apart our actions from who we are requires that we get in there and we really look, that we get really interested so that we can assess what has happened here. 
It requires that we stay out of the quicksand of blinding self-flagellation so that we can do exactly what Brene Brown says, so that we can hang on to the ability to hold something we've done or failed to do up against who we want to be, so that we can adapt, so that we can learn from it and grow and inch closer to the person that we know ourselves to be. You know, in the first paragraph, Leah puts her hand over Elias's heart and says, if you could just be who you are here instead of who they made you. Isn't this what we're all aiming for? To live into the raw truth of our beauty, of our full and connected humanity. In this passage, Leah is referring to Elias having been shaped by the external evildoers that are the seeming villains at this point in the story. But we can apply her words to our own internal journeys as well, right? We're always searching for how to live most fully into the truth of who we are, who we are when we are in the safety and comfort of, you know, I'm going to make this reference forever, but our own heart houses, who we are, not who the shame has tried to shrink us into. When we're willing to investigate and to examine, to keep asking questions and staying interested in what we find when we feel the prick of guilt, then we are gifted with an opportunity to learn something powerful about ourselves, about what matters to us, about how we move through this world. We can choose to allow that guilt to be a useless burden and to remain mired in the self-indulgent quicksand of self-flagellation. Or we can grab the rope offered us by curiosity and we can pull ourselves hand over hand and question over question out of that mire. We can look at the map of our life and mark those places that we have learned that we never want to step again. As Leah says, we can let our guilt be our fuel and let it remind us of who we want to be. Again, that was from Sabah Tahir's An Ember in the Ashes. And as always, you can find the link to the book as well as the Brene Brown TED Talk in the show notes at cindyjivinoli.com backslash podcast. Now this week's quote, and please keep sending yours, um, was from Evan T. And it is from Kate Harris's phenomenal book, Lands of Lost Borders. The quote that he chose. Although the Voyager's instruments dutifully recorded the size of particles in Saturn's rings, among other tasks on their strictly scientific mission, that casual snapshot offered something far more rare and significant than reams of data, a fundamental change in perspective, What's the most meaningful outcome of any kind of exploration? To reveal the old world and ourselves anew. And what Evan says about this. I love the story of how it was a fight to get the Voyager spaceship to turn around to take the blue dot photo. The mental image of a room of scientists resisting the idea of getting a photo of the Earth to inspire imagination and curiosity is both entertaining and a little terrifying. It's so natural to get sucked into whatever job is right in front of you and moments of creativity can pass us by without us noticing. How many people have been touched by that photo? I love that story too, Evan. And it really is so easy to put our heads down and get tunnel vision and consequently miss an opportunity right in front of us. So thank you so much for sharing this. And just an FYI, I have an entire podcast planned for Lands of Lost Borders. It's so good. 
And I'm so excited to share that with you soon. Now, next week, we're diving into an excerpt from Barry Lopez's tiny little book, The Rediscovery of North America. So until then, be sure to stay curious out there. That's it for this episode of the Say the Word podcast, where we explore how language is used in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry to connect us to what it means to be human and how to use curiosity to peel back the layers of what's keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives we were always meant to be living. Be sure to share and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And I would so appreciate it if you would go ahead and leave a review. Thanks for listening. I'm Cindy Givinoli, and I'll see you next week on Say the Word.